Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Psycho, the 1960 film directed by Alfred Hitchcock, screenplay by Joseph Stefano, based on the novel by Robert Block. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, mother. And Alex Gallegos. <laughs> Hi. Uh, okay, so we're talking about Psycho. It's October. It's Spooktober. And so Ooh. we've been wanting to talk about this movie also for a long time. So it was like, let's do it. Let's make this happen. And um, no one's ever talked about this movie before. So I think we're going to have a lot of original <laughs> insights. It's one of those obscure Hitchcock from his lesser known filmography. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so I I remember not remembering the first time I saw this movie. Like, it's one of those movies where I just feel like I've always seen it. Like, I've always mm. known of it. And I think it was one of those that very early on, my dad set me down when he was like, you're going to learn about movies. And here's 2001. And one of them was Psycho and, you know, regaling me with the stories of when it came out, people were fainting in the theaters and screaming. People left the theaters screaming. And so, like, it had that kind of, you know, the the storied history around it while watching it. And also it's like psycho. It's this really uh, good movie that does crazy things that somehow still work. You know, it's famous for killing off the protagonist halfway through the movie. Like there's all these really interesting structural things that it uh, does that would be really fun to talk about, but also just like watching it again, seeing all the things that it influenced. And it kept reminding me of, uh, other movies reminded me a lot of Fincher stuff. I just watched Panic Room, so that was part of it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What Lies Beneath, another movie of this era that was heavily inspired <laughs> by Psycho. Uh, so maybe one day we'll do a comparison of these two, those two gems. Um, but yeah, so I, I feel like it's a movie that I really appreciate and enjoy the filmmaking of and have seen it a lot have seen clips of it because if you watch any documentary about filmmaking ever like it's gonna talk about the shower scene and all the stuff so it's a movie that's been talked about a lot but that is always fascinating to revisit for me to just think about the filmmaking that happened and that it's bond and all of that so that's me and psycho i want to hear from you guys and psycho Trisha, tell me about Psycho. Yeah, so my history with Psycho is relatively short, as a matter of fact, um, because this is one of those movies that I saw in bits and pieces in film school, but never sat down and watched all the way through until like a couple of months ago. Oh, interesting. Um, Whoa. It's definitely been within the last year that I actually sat down and watched this movie all the way through. So then watching it this week, in preparation for this podcast was the second time I had seen Psycho wow. from start to finish. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, the shower scene is something, you know, as you point out, Michael, that, like, I've probably seen a dozen times just in isolation. Um, but there were lots of other things. And, like, I've seen, um, you know, the scene where she's driving at night and, like, the rain is coming down and the headlights mm-hmm. and she's, like, blinking, like, Her head really hurts and the music is going like really intense uh, that whole time. And just, you know, some of the sequences that are iconic now. And and so obviously nothing about the twist was twisty to me, Um, Mm -hmm. even seeing it for the first time a few months ago. Uh, But I will say there is 
a lot of other content in this movie that I didn't know was in here and wasn't ready for. And like, Mm -hmm. um, was very impressed by and really disturbed me effectively in the year of our Lord, 2021. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I was, I was very impressed. I mean, it's just, it's psycho, man. Like it's just (laughs) Hitchcock really, really knows how to make a disturbing movie that just gets under your skin. And this is a, like maybe the best thing. I mean, I'm not gonna say it's my favorite Hitchcock movie now because I'm still very much a rear window person. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's definitely up there. I think it's, I think it's outstanding and it's definitely one now that I've watched it twice, I need to go back and study, I think a lot more. So especially some of the dialogue sequences in here and, um, I think I oh, can't wait to get into it. Like I want to like talk about the investigation part, like a lot with you guys. Cause I think the investigation part yeah. is fascinating to the whole second half of the movie. Uh, but yeah, that's me and psycho. It does it. I'm new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you point that out. Cause that's, you know, as many times as I've seen the movie, when I do watch it, I kind of forget the second half, like my brain, right. you know, the, the shower scene and Norman cleaning it all up. Like that's like seared into my brain. But the rest of it is like just as tense and interesting. And there's a lot of stuff that happens uh, after that. But it's just the shock of, you know, that one sequence, I think, makes it stand out. Um, so, Brian, what about you? Are you newcomer? When when did you first see Psycho? How knowledgeable are you or familiar are you with it? Yeah, I would say it was probably I haven't seen it a ton, but it was probably around uh, in college when I watched it for the first time, when I was watching a bunch of stuff for the first time. And it's interesting with how many like bad horror movies there are that you sort of get a a sense of like, this is what a horror movie is. Mm -hmm. And then when you watch Psycho or The Shining or The Exorcist and the first act is like, look, here's some characters who have interesting (laughs) things. You're like, oh, right. I thought it was going to be like the, the, you know, someone dies in the first five minutes and then we have some characters for 10 minutes who we don't care about. And then a bunch of people die. But it's like, all three of these movies, all the movies I just mentioned are movies where like the first act, you're like, oh, look, you're just an actual drama. Like you are actually just doing like real character work and real drama work and that kind of thing. And then it gets real. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I definitely felt the first time I watched Psycho, I was just like, oh, well, because as you were saying, Trisha, it's like, well, I already know mm-hmm. the midpoint. I already know the ending. So it's like, that's not a surprise. What is a surprise is actually everything else all you know the character work and the dialogue and all that kind of stuff um so yeah i wouldn't say this is like top 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 tier hitchcock for me just because i love also rear window north by northwest it's sort of like psycho isn't the birds in terms of just being sort of like almost almost like on purpose kind of b-horror it's obviously a lot more than that um but it still is sort of like a shocky slashery kind of thing that that's embedded in a much more interesting you know kind of character story um so uh so yeah i i, I love the movie but i have not seen it in a while so it was really a, a pleasure to rewatch it for this and looking forward to talking to you guys about it yeah i was just gonna say a lot less happens in this movie than i thought right like very little actually happens in this movie to your point brian where it's like i'm expecting there to be like Six people die and there's really dramatic twists and turns and like we go all these places. 
we don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like two people die, which actually, ah, uh, Arbogast, we can talk about him. But, <laughs> but I was just like, this is not at all what I was expecting, right? With as someone who goes in knowing only sort of like, yeah, the bare bones of the plot. There, there just should have been more plot, I thought, in my brain. And I'm, I'm glad there isn't. I think it's in, what a tribute to what there is and, and the way the movie's made. But yeah. Right. And real quick, it's not like horror movies hadn't already existed for 40 years at it, this point. Like right. they had, you know, so it's not like, hey, it's the first horror movie. It's like, no, no, those had existed. This sort of like, look at all, you know, the Nosferatu or whatever, like, look at all this stuff. Psycho obviously made a clear choice to be more of a of a straight character piece than to be more of a look at all the look at all this body count kind of movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just one of the many like exceptional, unique things about this movie and how it was released and stuff like that, which will be fun to talk about. Um, but yeah, Alex, what about you? Uh, I had a similar hazy memory of when I first saw this, I think probably in high school at some point. It was just, you know rented or watched because it was a classic movie that I needed to see. And even before that, I'm sure I saw like a Simpsons episode that parodied, mm -hmm. you know, parodied it. I mean, I think there are references in culture everywhere oh, yeah. for the shower scene and Norman Bates and all this stuff. So um, there's that kind of cultural blur you get with a movie like this, where you don't really have a clean first experience. Uh, but what is really rewarding to revisit it. Uh, and this has happened like more than once, I think, upon revisiting the film, is I, I do forget about most of the movie just because so much of my initial experience of it is just from culture. That seems to be all there is. And a lot of my favorite parts of the movie are, are not those cultural landmark moments, mm -hmm. but are the characters. A lot of what I love is in that first act with just following the character of Marion and, and the paranoia and just mm -hmm. the kind of more straightforward kind of paranoid thriller uh, story going on there. Like, I really enjoy that. Uh, and so it, 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 it was really rewarding to revisit the movie now and and just get so much out of it that I wasn't expecting because I do seem to always forget how much more movie there is beyond, like, Norman Bates stabbing her. Basically. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, it's, and it's a really good movie, and, it, and it's a fun, uh, you know, it's a fun example of the Hitchcock thing, which is, the audience knows exactly what's going on, but the characters don't. And you're watching scene after scene of characters walking into a dangerous situation that you know is probably going to end badly, but they're not sure what they're in for. And it, the, the whole movie is kind of built on that, um, which is really fun. Well, actually, we recently talked about No Country for Old Men. And mm. this movie, I think, shares some sort of cinematic choices with No Country for Old Men, where it feels like it's messing with some of our expectations about what's going to be important and what isn't. Like the money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Like or the, the protagonist. Money. Yeah. <laughs> right, like, right. Or the protagonist. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Like it, it just it just seems like it is the first half of the movie is teaching you that it's one kind of movie. And like we're hearing Marion's right inner thoughts and mm. she's like playing out scenarios in her head of like her boss talking to her sister and talking to sam and it seems like it is this yeah paranoid thriller about marion and about like maybe one thing thematically and then it just isn't about that at all and like the form of the movie 
is what does that, right? It's not the character choices necessarily. It's just the entire like filmmaker choices that, you know, make a hard left turn right at the middle and make the movie about something completely different. But even right. in the back half, it's doing the same thing where it's like messing with our, you know, sort of training in terms of what film is about what we're expecting. It's like, here's a private investigator. He'll get to the bottom of it. <laughs> nope. nope. <laughs> he does get to the bottom of the stairs in one of the most <laughs> amazing shots of all time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, there, there aren't, there are plenty of movies where the protagonist doesn't make it to the credits. There aren't a lot of movies like No Country and Psycho where the protagonist doesn't even make it to the climax. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like they are right, discarded right. at some point. Well, and one thing I was struck by revisiting the film is the sequence that follows her death, which is so drawn out and is right. so real time. And it almost feels like the movie is just kind of screwing with you at that point. Like, like it knows the audience must be so disoriented and now we're just like in real time in this room in the aftermath of this horrific murder. No, like we have no footing. We have no idea what could possibly happen next. If this is a story about Marion, that's over. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's a very daring thing to do to just make your audience sit in that uncomfortable feeling for that long, because you could have a, you know, a choice where, after, right after she dies, we cut away to her sister or to Sam or like, right. you know, they're, they're already looking for her. But instead, the film forces us just to sit in this moment for like excruciatingly long. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and I still feel that I still feel that way watching it now, even though I know there is a story still to come and there is going to be an entertaining rest of this movie. The movie almost makes me question that for a minute. I'm like, wait, like, did this movie just run out of story? Like what? what is this movie anymore? And, and just what a thing to do in 1960 mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in like a mainstream Hitchcock, you know, thriller movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mentioned maybe a year ago on the podcast that I've been reading through the France, Francois Truffaut Hitchcock book with just like the conversation between them. And I'm, every, I'm a very slow reader. I, <laughs> I jumped ahead to the psycho chapters and kind of bed read them earlier. So I'm going to forget details. But one of the things they definitely did talk about was that sequence like you're talking about of once Marion is dead, uh, making sure things are going slowly. And it's the how methodical Norman Bates is about cleaning up everything that sort of helps win us over to him. Um, And, you know, there's the, you know, the moment where he's sinking the car and then it stops and it's Uh, maybe it's not going to get. And so that was a key moment to make audiences like that's kind of when you walk into, well, now I'm like with him, like, Oh God, what if the car doesn't like sink? Uh, so that's uh, part, like another interesting design of the character of Norman that's done throughout to make us more willing to switch who we're with to him. And, you know, in the book that it's based on the, the character that is, you know, the inspiration for Norman Bates, ish uh 
is very different. He's like old and overweight and like all these things that like would make him a not likable on screen protagonist or you know character or whatever. And so one of the things the screenwriter did was make Norman like a handsome young man who's like maybe you could sympathize with his situation and stuff to make it easier for the audience to switch allegiances once your footing is completely you know they pull the rug out from under you and your protagonist is not there anymore you have this other character that you have enough sympathy for hopefully that you can then get on board with okay now this is the person i'm with in this movie when it's, it's always because of the cultural you know unanimity of this movie it's hard to remember that the audience doesn't know that he's the killer at that moment like right like you do the movie has essentially broadcast that there is a second person here that person <laughs> killed marion he's the poor schmuck having to like protect his crazy mother by cleaning up the mess and it's a really interesting thing to remember that i, I often forget when i'm watching it like that, that i'm not supposed to know that he's the killer in that moment it's like watching Star Wars and having to remember that not everyone knows that Darth Vader is Luke's father. Right. Totally. Right. Totally. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because even if, you know, you can't unknow that Norman is the killer, and even if you can't get on Norman's side, which, you know, look, Anthony Perkins is very handsome and charming in his own way, but I wouldn't say that I'm ever like on his side in this movie. Mm. But yet the um just the deliberate pacing as we're talking about and the sort of focus on the minutia of what he's doing in terms of like cleaning it up and getting away with it it does not make me on his side but it does broadcast to me that the details of what's happening are going to be important so it's mm. like the maybe he did get seen when he was loading the body into the back of the car maybe the car didn't sink as deep as like it needed to go like maybe because it isn't that deep you know he'll go back to it later and like find the money or like you know there's there are the movie is telling me that some of this stuff is important again it reminds me of no country for old men we were talking about like watching Shigur do little tasks and, and also watching Moss mm. do little tasks and how fascinating that is because we're putting together like what's going to be significant about what they're doing. So like whether it's watching like Shigur, you know, cut up a shirt and a box of cotton balls and like turn a car into a bomb in that movie so he can like steal the medication he needs to treat the gunshot wound in his leg we're just watching a character do little tasks that are ultimately do end up becoming somewhat important, right? And mm. same thing when we're watching Moss, like, hiding the briefcase in that film. So as we're watching, even when we're watching Marion do little tasks, and we're watching, you know, uh, Norman do little tasks, again, the movie is telling us all of these tiny things add up to something that is significant, either in terms of plot or character. So we need to be paying close attention and internalizing them. And that is a remarkable feat, considering so few of them end up actually meaning anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, regardless of if they mean anything later on, uh, what the movie is doing really clearly is essentially doing a clear handoff from Marion to Norman of we were sure. watching her, right. you know, take all these steps to try to get away with stealing money like like. This is a crime movie about her trying to get away with this money. We are 
like maybe we're judging her for what she's doing, but we're we're like on the side of wanting to see if she gets away with it or not, or what's going to happen. And we're we're holding our breath when the cop pulls her over or whatnot. And the movie does then treat Norman the same way in this scene. It's mm-hmm. like the same way she's trying to debate how to like fold up the money into the newspaper. He's debating how to fold up her body <laughs> into <right>. a <laughs> curtain. And so it's interesting. It, it, the movie basically is saying like, this is still a movie about us, somebody trying to get away with something. It's just not the thing you thought it was. <laughs> mm. It's a new, it's a new thing and a new person, but the, dramatic question essentially remains the same which is is this main person going to get away with it interesting yeah there's a there's a few interesting things that come of this which is one of which is watching a movie through the narrative of the movie versus through the meta of already knowing it you know when you watch your favorite movie for the 10th time you already know what's going to happen you already know what's going to happen but presumably you are still trying to watch it through Luke's eyes before (laughs) Vader drops the truth bomb or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, I know what's going to happen, but I'm still hopefully with these characters and sort of going through this as they are going. So watching Psycho for the first time or Planet of the Apes for the first time, you're like, I already know what's going to happen because I've seen this. (laughs) But hopefully I can still watch it through the eyes of the of the protagonist or the characters who are sort of discovering this information for the first time. And then there's the interesting thing of, as you were saying, Trisha, like, well, I'm not necessarily on his side or not necessarily rooting for, you know, for Norman or or for Shiger, but it's also like we are sort of trained as film watchers to to still be watching some for someone to achieve the thing that they are trying to achieve, right? So mm-hmm. if a killer is dragging a body around a corner and a cop is walking up, maybe our meta brains is going like, oh, we want the cop to, to see so that they stop the killer and the killer goes to jail because that's the kind of justice we want in the world. But if we're watching, if if the scene is being told from the killer's point of view, we're like, oh, the cop's coming. Like, you got to hurry right. up. You know what I mean? Right. So it's that interesting thing. And of course, the way those two things tie together is if you are watching this movie through the character's eyes, we, of course, don't know at this point that Norman is the killer. Mm-hmm. We we don't know the full context of what exactly he is doing. So is he even if he's obviously covering up a, a murder for for his mother, like that's not OK. But at least there's maybe like some empathy there, right? Where you're like, oh, you just really care about, you know, your family members. So you are. So it's like at least we can kind of empathize a little bit, even if you're like there's something wrong with you clearly <laughs> like uh but it's stuffing but it's, it's, birds right it's just that sort of which uh which so many movies play with that sort of like here's here's like the language that we have been taught as a film going audience that right. it's like you don't have to be on someone's side or agree with them to still be like but if they're the protagonist of the scene if they are if they are the main character of the scene i should say then we are like taught that we we want them to get to to achieve the thing they're trying to achieve which is just so fascinating yeah, but like that's where the sorts of tension is, and and like like you guys are pointing out, you know the the amount of time spent on the detail of all the effort going into it, I think is another way it just kind of like viscerally forces us to invest in the effort that someone mm-hmm. is putting into it. Like I was just imagining if someone was an evil supervillain and they were going to blow up the world, like they're bad. But if we then watched them for five tense minutes set up the most elaborate like domino set ever and like not one domino could fall over improperly like 
by the end of that sequence, I right. feel like I would be like, oh, God, but like, don't accidentally knock over the domino. <laughs> Even if, like you're saying, Brian, meta wise, we know morale, like, he's the bad guy. We don't want the dominoes to fall. But when you see someone put that time and investment into a thing, you do have this kind of like, like reptilian investment, and right. like, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I want to pick your brains about something or just like ask you guys a question being a newcomer to Psycho um, <laughs> and also being completely obsessed with theme. So we're talking mm. about No Country for Old Men and, uh, you know, in our most recent podcast, and we were discussing how like everything that movie does is like very textually clearly related to the theme of the film. And mm -hmm. so um, like the filmmaking, everything, like the performances, everything comes together and like really clearly renders and communicates the theme. Um, and I feel like I have some ideas about the theme of Psycho, but I don't know. And like, maybe this is one of those movies that is like, has a plot that is so wildly compelling and that the moments in it are just so terrifying that the theme doesn't need to like totally coalesce. And, and I'm like open to that if that's the case. But I also feel like there must be something in the scene, in the long scene where Norman is talking to Marion right before we do that handoff and Marion doesn't make it and Norman becomes our protagonist, essentially. Like, there's that long scene where they're sitting in that room full of birds and they're just talking <laughs> for a long time. I feel like there must be something textual in that about the theme. And I just want to know what you guys think this movie is about and where it might be found in that theme if in that scene if it is in there yeah it's not it's, a quiz I'm, I'm genuinely curious <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well yeah it's hard give us multiple choice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> teachers calling on us i kind of want to hear like from alex and brian your sort of just reactions or thoughts maybe because i i watched a behind the scenes like documentary oh, okay, so, so you know. i Mm. Well, I, you know, there's uh, an extensive interview with the screenwriter and he sort of talks about things he was dealing with and how those kind of express themselves in the movie and in the dialogue and some of the sort of, some of that. So I get the sense that it maybe wasn't, and, you know, I feel like Hitchcock is kind of famous for like not super caring about like Again, things like that, <laughs> like in, in the, in the interview with Truffaut he's sort of like talking about how proud he is like the performances like weren't great and it wasn't great this or that but the filmmaking was amazing and that's why I'm so proud of it it's like <laughs> right, the right. filmmaking did all of it and you know the the writer would come up to him and be like you know what do you think about this motivation or what do you think this character is thinking and he's like that's your job I don't care <laughs> so sure I feel like him as a filmmaker might not have been super concerned with that and that's maybe not why it comes all the way through but I am still curious to hear what, what we extract from it. I mean, there's that famous Hitchcock quote where he says, themes are for eighth grade book reports. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would, I would say for me personally, like th maybe that's why Psycho has not resonated for me the way movies, like I said, The Shining or The Exorcist have. The Exorcist is probably my favorite horror movie. And partially because I'm like, hey, this movie is about something. Like, I think it's like a really good drama film. And then it's it's also about something in the uncut version. There's like a scene where the two priests sit down and talk about the theme of the film. And it's like, this is why it's like, oh, what? 
first of all, don't cut it, you know, like, like, <laughs> like the mother, the freaking daughter scene in Aliens, where it's right. like, hey, this whole point of everything is in this one scene. We don't need it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I would say that, like, I'm, I'm, people know Psycho way better than I do and are going to have lots of answers to your question, Trisha. But I would say for me, the maybe the reason I've never, like, thought of this as being like a high on my list Hitchcock things because I have it, it has never really made me think that much beyond just the content of the film itself which is a very well-made film mm. so Alex <laughs> your turn <laughs> we are all yeah, failing I mean, the quiz <laughs> yeah. I, I I can't point to like one thing that ties it all together um I do think that there are themes or or there are ideas that kind of live in different parts of the movie. Like, I think the first part of the film feels very coherent to me where it's really about sure. paranoia and, uh, m you know, kind of illicit like, relationships and kind of yeah. break breaking cultural norms and uh, kind of the criminality of her, like, unmarried ways or whatever. There's something, <laughs> sure. something all kind of tied up there with her relationship with Sam and you know, divorce and alimony and stealing money. And there's something interesting, 1950s, 1960s morality discussion in there. Uh, but then, you know, then she gets stabbed in the shower and now we're following a story about a man who it's, then it becomes more like a, a Freudian psychoanalytic story about, you know, uh, jealousy and I mean, basically, basically the backstory of Norman Bates is like a, totally like you know oedipal yeah, uh, yeah, freudian yeah. like you know messy thing mm -hmm. um which i think and you know i think i was reading on wikipedia somebody said this is like the first psychoanalytic film like mm, like it really and there's even like theories about the mansion has three stories and that could they could represent the super ego the ego and the id mm -hmm. and the mother is moved from like the top story to the like the middle story to the bottom story by the end like so there's like Lots of different ways to read it in these kind of symbolic Freudian ways. I don't know if that that counts as theme, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but I think there, I think there are, there's a lot in there that is interesting. I don't think it all can be tied together in a nice bow, mm. as far as as far as my viewing of the film. Right, but it is it is interesting that Psycho is the first psychoanalytic film, and Vertigo is the first Vertigo analytic film, and yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Michael, you were going to say something. Yeah, uh, just um, <laughs> uh, well, the the so the the screenwriter was literally in a, a Freudian psychoanalysis like therapy okay. like ongoing session while go. writing this movie. Mm. So I think you cracked it, Alex. <laughs> there's a there's yeah, and I feel like I just want to read really quick. I found the quote from the Truffaut book where oh yeah. Hitchcock says, you know, my main satisfaction is that it had an effect on audiences. <clears throat> I don't care about the subject matter. I don't care about the acting, but I do care about the pieces of film and the photography and the soundtrack and all of the technical ingredients that made the audience scream. Uh, and then later he says that it's, uh, that's why I take pride in the fact that Psycho, more than any of my other pictures, is a film that belongs to filmmakers, to you and me. Uh, so I feel assuming like you reading is a filmmaker. Yeah, well, he's talking to Francois <laughs> Truffaut. Yeah, yeah. Right, so right, it's right. like uh, but it's yeah. directors. Like this is a director's yeah, yeah. movie. Yeah, nobody else. And it's yeah. just like an interesting like. There's so much like ego uh, in that, uh -huh. but also like generosity of like wanting the audience to have an emotional reaction at the same time. And like, like that's 
it's a fascinating headspace to have a, a storyteller be in. Yeah. I mean, wow, pretentious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and also, yeah, just uh, thinking about how that's typically like that kind of, I just want to make the audience scream and I don't care what it's about. Uh, that kind of attitude typically really rubs me the wrong way. And it's normally very obvious to me when I'm watching a film where that's the case. Um, and or a film where the filmmaker is yeah, like more like more concerned with whatever it is that he or she is interested in and not concerned with the experience that I'm having as an audience member. Um, mm. And that's, again, usually very obvious when that's the case. I think this movie is a really fascinating example. I mean, a lot of Hitchcock movies, as you point out, are not overly concerned with being about something or being about theme. And that's maybe why I love Rear Window, which at least mm. the character arcs in Rear Window exist. <laughs> you know, um, especially the Grace Kelly character has like an actual character arc in her relationship with Jimmy Stewart. Um, we should talk about Rear Window sometime soon. Um, but yes, yeah. and, and even North by Northwest and some of those other, like I would say even maybe Vertigo is like sort of more cohesively about something thematically yeah. yeah um but i just think it's so fascinating that there's this overt randomness to the way that the plot of psycho plays out um similar to no country for old men which is about the randomness of the universe <laughs> and psycho does not seem to be about that in any way but it does really remind me of that where it's just like um you know, we we prefer events in movies as audience members. We prefer events in movies to be caused. We want there mm. to be a chain of causality. Um, and guess what turns out not to be important? Virtually everything that Marion does. Mm -hmm. Like there's that whole long scene with the cop. We never see that guy again. I was like, that guy's going to catch Norman Bates at the end. Nope. <laughs> nope. Uh, or he's gonna show up and wonder where Marion went because he definitely figures out that she's the one that stole the money and like because he looked at the records that the guy at the used car dealership had for Marion and like he's gonna put it together. No, uh, we're never gonna see him again. We're never gonna see used car guy again. We're never gonna see the money again. Like, um, that's a wild situation. Um, <laughs> you know, Marion's sister and Sam they find a scrap of paper that has $40,000 written on it and it's in the toilet. That doesn't need, they don't need that as evidence. Sam never gets it out of his wallet ever again. Right. So I like, I just, I, it's astounding to me that this transgresses so many of those like basic, like string your scenes together kinds of rules. Mm. And yet it's so enduring. Like, is it just that it's so shocking? Like, I, I truly wonder. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's, there's two things happening here. One of which is what you said, Alex, which is like the first half of the movie feels so cohesive. Like, you know, I, one of my favorite stories is a person who is living life incorrectly and then decides to change their life, but it's too late and they sort of end up suffering at the end. And I never like to list those movies because it's sort of a spoiler for what the ending of those movies is. Um, but I will say like American Beauty is a pretty safe example of that. Um, so if, the, if you look at the first half of Psycho as a, as its own a standalone story, it's like, oh, this character makes this very bold choice 
to take the money and run, basically. And then she d- makes another choice. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it back. But guess what? Sorry, you kind of made your choice. And this is th- this is the fallout of that choice. This is the, the you know, the consequence. Um, but then, as you're saying, Trisha, then like, how does the second half of the movie actually reflect that? And it kind of doesn't. But then that's also why it's so fascinating that this movie is so compelling for the second half of it. And, and part of that is just like if you are looking, the intellectual theme stuff is tricky. But the just visceral audience member stuff mm. works where you're just like, oh, he's got to cover up the evidence. And like, oh, he, he's fine. They're going to go check the motel room. And like, he's got to distract him while she goes in there. So it's just that sort of like there, there's that, like you were saying, Michael, the reptilian brain of just I'm, I'm watching a movie and like it's doing movie at me. Right. <laughs> but then it's kind of like what you are looking for, like, but how does. How does the second half reflect the themes of the first half? It's like, eh, and that's kind of where Hitchcock is like, oh, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> but it like kind of still works. And that's why, you know, is Psycho a perfect movie? No, because it should do that stuff too. But at the same time, it is a very good movie that is very well regarded. And that's for those reasons, because it still works on that kind of gut level. Hmm. Hello there, Michael here to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Massive. Massive is a file sharing service that lets media professionals quickly transfer terabytes of data to anyone in the world over the cloud. So to date, I have used about 65 terabytes of hard drive space. And I'm not saying that to brag. I mean, I kind of am because I'm a nerd, but because it demonstrates how big files can get when you're recording podcasts, shooting video, and making video essays. This becomes a huge problem when you need to share footage with someone working remotely because most cloud file transfer solutions limit you to just a couple hundred gigabytes. Any kind of limit to the amount of data you can transfer or the speed at which you can transfer it is just not acceptable when you need to send huge files. That's what's so great about our sponsor, Massive. There are no limits to the amount of data you can send, and Massive has 150 servers worldwide, which means whoever you're sending the file to will be able to download it at a maximum unthrottled speed. To learn more and to sign up for Massive, head to massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay. When you sign up at that link, you'll get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. That's massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay for 100 gigabytes free. The link is in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Well, it's interesting because I, I think back to when I did first see this movie when I was in high school or whatnot, and I don't remember liking it that much. And I think part of mm. it was m- not having these kind of unconscious markers of like, this is all adding up to something or like, this is going somewhere. Like, I think there was a discomfort with the discombobulation you feel once she's dead and then it just keeps going. And now there's this new character comes in, there's a detective and Sam and her sister are doing stuff now. And what, like, what's this movie even about or what's going on anymore? I think there is, that was part of why I didn't enjoy it that much back then because I wasn't even conscious of, conscious of it at the time, but I, I was expecting these landmark landmarks and signals from the film that are telling me like, this is where it's going. Here's what you should expect. Here's how we're going to subvert those expectations, et cetera. But it's interesting watching it now. I was so into it because those landmarks weren't there. And so every scene in and of itself 
I was leaning forward, I was into it because I didn't really have a directionality that I was expecting. Mm. Like I didn't, I didn't know for sure the detective was going to have to do this next. And this was definitely going to happen next to this. And it was all just open. And so it's a double-edged sword there where I think on the one hand, I agree. Rear window is a much more satisfying film because it just adds up. And when that movie is done, I just feel good. And I, I really enjoyed the experience. Whereas psycho, uh, in an interesting way, yeah, doesn't stay with me, doesn't give me that satisfaction. But in the moment of watching it, I I do enjoy that feeling of disorientation. And it's, it's like that, it's like what you're saying, Brian, kind of a presentness. Like mm -hmm. there's not even a bigger picture to hold on to. You're just in the present with these characters kind of fumbling around, just doing what they think they can do next to find Marion. <laughs> and 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 it's it's not about the bigger thing that is usually kind of unconsciously holding it all together for you as a viewer. Yeah, there there are a lot of interesting things here. And and your question, Trisha, is kind of when I was asking myself watching it this time was like, is this movie like famous for being good? Like, is it actually that good? Or is it like, um, I watched a video or read something about the Mona Lisa painting and how it wasn't a famous painting until it was stolen, kind of like in the early mm -hmm. 1900s. And then it became this famous painting of like, it was stolen and then it was returned. And now everyone wants to flock to see the Mona Lisa. Hmm. So it became famous almost for being famous. And there's a lot about Psycho that could uh, add to that narrative where it, you know, the, the kind of gimmick, if you want to call it that, of how it was released, where, you know, for the first time ever, you know, they had people not letting, you were not allowed inside of the theater after the movie started because that was a thing that used to happen is people would just wander into a movie like after the movie had started but they had signs and rules around uh every theater that was like we won't allow you we won't even let the president or the queen herself into this movie theater we're not gonna let you <laughs> cheat you cheat yourself like no admittance after the movie started because they didn't want spoilers like this movie kind of invented wow. spoilers mm -hmm. uh, right and so and that generated tons of buzz because then it's like well people are lining up at a movie theater to be let like why is there a line here and then people taking so there was so much just buzz and like hype around it that it was also kind of this phenomenon just unto itself like regardless and then with the content of the movie being so shocking and some details from the making of that i think helped paint this picture for me was that uh you know showing the uh, a bra and like the mechanics of I a bra where you say. could see like clasps mm. and stuff like usually that was hidden if there if right. a movie dared show a bra you like you couldn't show the machinery that like yeah. made it work it's the first toilet flushing right in, in exactly American... yeah, yeah. What, you couldn't really? show a toilet on screen yeah oh wow so like that's the headspace in which people are watching this right. movie and it's so, so it, subversive you know yeah. so I like, like we're flushing evidence down a toilet <laughs> right <laughs> and so i think that's kind of what i connect with when i watch it now is that like movies were different you know 60 years ago or whatever it's been and i think that's sometimes my hurdle with old movies is that they don't follow the language and uh, rules that we've kind of established where you know we know how to convey a theme and how like pacing and like why scenes should only be in a movie if they're helping do this or that this movie definitely doesn't follow mm -hmm. all that but knowing what i know about it and watching it after 
the shower scene, I can picture myself sitting in a theater in 1960 being like, they just murdered a famous person halfway through. Like, I don't, I literally have no idea what to expect from this experience now. Right. And I feel like that energy is what guides me to the end and is what I think that helps the legacy be what it is. Mm. Yeah. I, as I mentioned last, uh, last week, I've been watching a lot of older movies and it's, it's so, there is that sort of, you do appreciate a movie more when you understand the context around it. That shouldn't be how art works, but it, but it, it is whether you like it or not. So I recently watched the movie Journey to Italy. Uh, it's a Roberto Rossellini film. Uh, and it's 1954, uh, Ingrid Bergman. And, and like this couple is arguing and they just sort of, they decide like 30 minutes in, like we, we're unhappy, we should get divorced. And I was like, this is a 1954 movie. Like, this is amazing. Uh, right. you know? So it was like on a meta aspect, the movie itself I thought was, was good. And like, that's the, maybe the best I can say about it. But like on a meta aspect, I'm going, this is a 1954 movie where these characters are just like unhappy and getting divorced. Or like the 400 blows where it's like the 50s and you're just watching characters kind of hang out for five minutes and they're not really doing anything you're like oh wow that that that's normal now but that wasn't normal back then and i think that that's that's a huge part of psycho's legacy is just the fact that it it was it did a bunch of stuff that was not done at the time which sort of almost unlocked and that is what you find from like foreign movies in the 50s and american movies in the 60s is mm-hmm. the sort of like Hey, what if we can push the beds together, right? Like, what if what if we don't have to sort of follow <laughs> right, right. all of these rules about how things uh, things are supposed to be? And then, of course, that sort of unlocks the '70s, which then gives way to what we can still consider modern cinema. Yeah, and just speaking to you know, sort of the shock content of like. The, overall in this movie i do think that even watching that opening scene where she's lying in the bed and Mm -hmm. like in her bra and talking to sam and it's like very clear what the situation is um it does feel more modern than it you know like than i would have thought they could get away with right like you know having seen again i'm super familiar with north by northwest and there's so much just like double entendre and innuendo and but like nothing is shown in that movie and and so many other hitchcock movies where like any sexual content is very much just like sort of hinted at or implied and not really shown at all it's just like this movie is it's full-on out there um from the very very opening scene and i feel like we can't like skip over or brush by not just the way that the filmmaking handles that, but the way that the filmmaking handles the murder itself. So like, I don't want to necessarily get into and dissect the shower scene because it's been done to death. Mm. Um, uh, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but I will say that it's very easy to imagine myself sitting in a theater in 1960. And you would just have to scream aloud. You would just absolutely have to scream aloud because I want to scream aloud now (laughs) when we have that shot. And I know that the door is going to open way in the back corner Uh of the frame Uh and the shower curtain is going to obscure it. But there's so clearly someone walking into the room. It's like everything about it is hand. And like the filmmaking surrounding this 
taboo content is still incredible to this day and still conveys so much horror and like this visceral reaction to it that you know i it's no wonder it's no wonder that like everything you're saying michael about the way that it was released needed to be done that way and like or, or the choices make sense surrounding like how this content would have been like handled and viewed and received at that time well i think the shower scene also does you know what other classic films have done for other situations you know like don't go into the ocean because of jaws but you know it it reveals to the audience yes. how vulnerable you are in the shower <laughs> like yes. like you are naked and alone and in like slippery water and there's a shower curtain here that kind of obscures your view and like somebody could be walking to the room and you wouldn't even know because the shower is running and so you can't it, hear it, it yeah yeah, it, it, it revealed this like banal household thing to be actually maybe extremely vulnerable and terrifying, which is always, I think, some of our most enduring horror things. Take something we used to enjoy or like <laughs> thought of as like fun, like going to the beach, you yep. know, things that are <laughs> that are that are really pleasurable and like thought of as banal become, oh my God, I'm so vulnerable in this situation. And now I now I can't not think of that for a second when I step right. into the situation in the future. Yeah, that's why a good word. All your house doors. This is lock why you have a bathroom doors, door that everybody. locks. This is why you have a see-through <laughs> curtain. Nightmare on Elm Street. You can't even go to sleep, so you can lock all your doors, but then you got to stay awake the whole time. There's also a great movie that's tagline uh, was "Does for bathtubs what Psycho did for showers," <laughs> and maybe one day we will investigate what lies beneath. Oh boy! I was, I was no. hoping it was the blob. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's like you're saying, there's so much to be said about the shower scene and the aftermath, how it's all handled. Like, it's one of the few sequences in any movie that I've gone through and watched frame by frame, just because like you want to. Like, I just want to yeah. know every frame of that. And even just thinking about the pacing of the editing, like editing didn't happen that fast in 1960. So just like the the cuts themselves were cuts, right? Um, so yeah, there's just so much to talk about um, and a lot of lessons that we can extract from Psycho. So why don't we move into lessons? Brian, do you want to start us off? Oh God, there's there's so much. We haven't even talked about Andrew Garfield as as Norman Bates. I mean, yeah. so, <laughs> um, you mean Ben Wishaw as Norman? Bates? Uh, we, what? We How talked. dare both of you? <laughs> <laughs> um. We haven't talked about the completely pointless shot for shot remake that Gus Van Sant did. Why um, would we? It's kind of amazing though. Like I remember watching it and being fascinated by it. And I watched the trailer for if people don't know, they <laughs> did a shot for shot remake of Psycho yeah. in nineteen ninety-eight with Vince Vaughn and Anne Hayes and Julianne Moore and Viggo uh, Mortensen and yep. William H. Macy. What? Yeah. Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. Holy Sam. <laughs> yeah. And it's but it's also like it's not exactly shot for shot. But some of the things they included were stuff that were in the original cut that then had to get cut out. So they were kind of the original vision, but it's in color and it's like the disgust. Anyway, sorry. I like I, the Gus Van Sant at least was like, look, this is just an experiment. And it's like, fair enough. You you you, right. you tried something, you know. Every 30 years, let's just do it. Have somebody yeah. remake Psycho. Why not? Right. Um, no, but I mean, I was thinking about, and no, it's not, this is not something no one has talked about before, but like how it, how it keeps us at the on the edge of our seats even after our protagonist is gone 
and sort of that that rule breaking thing. And we already talked about this a lot, but I was trying to think about the actual mechanics and the actual like dramatic question. Why are we still watching at that point? It's like, okay, so Marion is gone. The money doesn't even matter anymore, probably. Does anything matter? What matters, basically? And it's like, okay, so now we are, again, if we're not on Andrew Garfield's side, we are at least, <laughs> we are at least wondering, is he going to get caught, right? So, so there's a tense, there's a tension there in those scenes where it's like, even if I want him to get caught, I am also tensely wondering if he's going to get caught and if he is sort of my my main character this moment that i'm been kind of wondering and uh, you know da, da, da. and then of course we are following lila and the cop and you know arbogast um and <laughs> all this stuff i love uh, arbogast oh god we didn't talk about the cinematography all these amazing shots like when norman yeah. is like leaning over to look at the signature and we that's see my it's favorite like, shot oh. that's my favorite shot it's so good and then the cop going up the stairs and going down the stairs um yeah. My lessons but, uh, about that, so we'll talk about right. that. Right, but then also there is the mystery of you know, of course, there is this like unfortunate, maybe not the most sensitive reveal of what Norman's entire thing is. Right at the end of the movie, um, but we actually, as the audience, don't know that until the final scene. So it's like if we knew if this movie was just about a a woman goes to a hotel the guy there kills her and then the second half of the movie is is the guy going to get caught that doesn't have the same narrative tension and oomph and mystery to it as there's a guy and his mother apparently is there and he is cleaning up for her and we kind of get the sense it's probably not the first time he's done this because he's horrified but also he's like oh i know what to do now um and then and then we are seeing sort of like, okay, we're seeing the mother run through, you know, the over the top camera shot and like, that kind <laughs> right. of thing. And then we see like the corpse of the mother, we're like, wait, what's going on here? And then it's not until the final scene where it's revealed exactly what was going on the whole time. So it's interesting that that is the other part of that dramatic question is not just, is Norman going to be caught? It's, we don't even know what's happening yet we don't even know right. what the actual plot <laughs> right. of the movie is yeah. until that final scene um so i think it's just a really nice study in how to even even if you are showing the audience both sides pov you're showing norman's pov and you're showing everybody else's pov we still don't have all the answers so you're still keeping you're still that control of information you're still keeping the mystery alive until until the credits basically which i think is uh, is the the main reason this movie, the second half of this movie, is as watchable as it is? Yeah, this time I I clocked also, you know, when when um, Sam and and the sister, who I love, who like she reminds me a lot of Elizabeth Marvel. Also, if you guys know her, oh, yeah. she was in House of Cards, House Cards and yeah. Lincoln, and unbelievable lots of things. Anyway, um, but like they, they like go to the sheriff's house, and that's you know at the end of that sequence, he drops the bomb of like that woman's been dead for. 20 years, 10 years <laughs> 10 or whatever. Years. Yeah. <laughs> and so that is like you're saying it, 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 the once Marion is gone, it does kind of tease this other mystery. And then I feel like that is the moment when it's like, no, there was like a mist. There's a puzzle left to be solved and like keep mm -hmm. watching people. And it is cool. Cause you don't think about that when thinking about the movie, but that is an integral, integral part of, uh, of the story. Well, and integral. the question that the sheriff asked, is like a question that like is absolutely not the most salient or like 
not the actual question, right? He's like, if if she's not dead, then who's buried in that cemetery? And like, <laughs> the answer is nobody. Like, because right. he he did bury her, but then he stole the corpse back. So like, I don't know. That that's this is kind of what my lesson <laughs> turns out to be. Um, which is just that, you know, I ultimately don't think that this movie really holds together thematically. Um, and I'm not saying that as like a slight on the film at all. I'm just pointing it out that it doesn't seem concerned with themes. However, the dialogue scenes do have this kind of interesting tension to them where, or subtext to them, where we as the audience always know more, uh, pretty much always mm -hmm. know more than the individual characters that are involved in the scenes. And virtually every dialogue sequence is about deception. And there are so many dialogue sequences in this where people are hiding um so like from marion talking to the cop early on um where she's like is there some is there something wrong and he was like you're acting like there is and she's like me no i'm not and you're like, <laughs> right um and then like trying to talk to the used car salesman and like i just i just want a new car is it, what's wrong with that um and you know all the way to Norman also like concealing things and talking to Arbogast and talking to um, Sam and Marion's sister, where again, he's concealing things and people trying to act normal when yeah. we as the audience know that things are nowhere close to normal um, is really fascinating. And so, you know, it's a very old sort of screenwriting experiment or like very basic lesson that you might tell to like a group of people writing their first script, like young screenwriters, like give a character a secret and then like make them try to act normal. Like the secret's not a secret and like conceal something actively. Um, but I think what this movie does with that as an idea is a make us complicit in the secret, um, except in the scene where we don't know, we know Mary and see it's, it's a, it's that scene where they're talking in the room with all the stuffed birds, but mm -hmm. we know Marion's secret. We don't know Norman's secret yet, mm -hmm. which is really fascinating and, and totally recontextualizes that scene. And it's right afterward that he lifts that painting off the wall and like looks through the peephole into her right. room. Mm -hmm. You creepy creep. Um, <laughs> so we know that something is not right, but we don't really know what the secret is. So we know Marion's secret. We don't know Norman's secret. But in virtually every other scene, we know the secret. And it just becomes this like sort of acting exercise for the characters where the characters are playing a part or they're trying to play like a normal version of themselves. And it's sort of a hallmark of crime movies, but I can't think of another example where virtually every dialogue scene is this <laughs> in the same way that psycho is mm -hmm. basically every single dialogue scene is pretty much this where someone's hiding something and someone else is trying to act like they're not hiding something. Um, and it turns out that's pretty infinitely watchable. Your scenes don't <laughs> even have to be about anything. Right. They can just be that. Right. I feel like one of the examples of where it, doesn't work as well for me as when Arbogast first talks to uh, Sam and the sister 
and they're sort of like all trying to feel out like you're looking for Marion, I'm looking for Marion, like, like and it's like we're actually all on the same team, but we don't know that yet, and we're gonna like kind of draw out yeah. this tension until we're all realize we're working together. Well, um, and maybe that's because we as the audience know they're all on the same team. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And and it's the other great part about those the scenes when they are working is that we know the secret and we also know the clues that could reveal the secret. So exactly. like Arbogast is talking to Norman and he's like, let me check the book and like this thing. Yeah. And like, which key is like Norman going to give any given guest like has tension around it because we know which room things happened in mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah. It's really good. Awesome. Alex, what's your lesson? Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about how the opening sequence or the first act or first half of the movie does have that the same thing that the exorcist has or other other classic horror films where it is just a character drama and i think it's just a great reminder that you can make a great genre movie that has real characters that have real problems and real tension going into the situation where the horror is going to happen and that is so much more compelling we care so much more uh if if there's already a compelling problem that the character has uh you, you see like a generic horror movie trailer or thriller trailer and it's so boring when it's just like they were the perfect family like you know here's the b-roll of them on like the swing set and then the <laughs> horror then the horror happens to them and now it, it they have to fight for their lives it's like that's that's a boring movie until the horror happens and it's so much it's so much more rewarding to already just be along for the ride of a, just a good character drama and then get your money's worth with the horror to follow that so I just think if, yeah, if you're working on a horror screenplay or something in this kind of thriller genre, uh, you know, don't just lean on the thrills. It's it's worth it to make a good character drama in here as well. And then, you know, we're I think we're going to be already leaning forward when the thrills come, not bored, wanting to fast forward to them. It's a very different state of mind. So this is a great example of I could have watched a whole movie about Marion just trying to get away with this money. And that's that's a mm. great place to be in, uh, right? When you get to the to the slasher part of your movie. Well, yeah. The, sorry, real quick. There's yeah. like a really nice thing that you can say a lot about good movies, which is like it works even if X isn't in it. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, and I find a lot a, a lot of the time I'm like, oh yeah, even if you don't do this thing, the movie is still good, and that's what you're saying. Sorry, Mike. Mm-hmm. Well, and that just that it it does kind of double duty, and that it you know we're we're getting so invested in her story. You know, the first it's 27 minutes before we arrive at the Bates motel. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like the whole first act is about Marion and everything. So that like, by that time the audience has settled into, this is what the story is about. And I feel like it's that hyper commitment to telling the audience that this is what the movie is that Mm -hmm. of course makes that so shocking. And again, that's, not a revelation, but it was just interesting tracking because I couldn't remember how long it was until we got to the motel, and it's it's almost thirty minutes of the movie, and it's, yeah, yeah, it's quite a commitment. When I, I feel like there's like a half-assed version of this where it's you know she does have a problem or whatever, but we don't we're not invested. We don't spend that much time getting to know her world and her relationship and all the dynamics going on in her life. Like the amount of time we invest in it does signal to audience brain. Yeah, this is what this movie is. And what a great, if you want to do the No Country for Old Men thing, uh, that's where you want your audience to be. Uh, so, so that it truly is disorienting and shocking when that story is suddenly cut off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just the cinematography is beautiful in this movie and like not just visually, but as you were speaking to earlier, Brian, like so creative and just obviously set up so many things that we've seen a million times after. Uh, but yeah, at times it can be really claustrophobic, like that shot you're mentioning where like Norman is leaning all the way over and we're mm -hmm. staying on him. The camera isn't cutting and it's so uncomfortable and it's so <laughs> tense um to like the shower scene obviously like you were saying trisha like every shot is it's just it's so good and then uh yeah when abergast arbergast arbogast yes martin balsam who i really love as an actor i yeah very familiar with love his face oh, he's great <laughs> yeah good performance um especially when he's falling downstairs um but that shot that like follows him up and yeah, it's it's this crazy wild crane shot that yeah. starts in a normal place and then ends, like you were saying, Brian, in this like direct overhead shot, which while that's happening, we're hearing uh, Norman talk to his mother. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of repeated twice. But yeah, that it's all done in one take and ends in the shot that does obscure her. So we can't really see what's going on, but it's also just so dramatic and twisting space and all the stuff. The and music. And the music, how Bernard all, Herman, yeah, like, yes, the iconic, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the most, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, that's just a whole other cheat code. It's almost like Star Wars, where like this movie without this music, would it be good at all? Question yeah. marks. I don't know. Um, anyway, but it just, it, it reminded me a lot of, uh, like Fincher's camera also. And like I said, I just watched Panic Room, which was Fincher mm -hmm. at the most, like, we can now do things using CG uh that hitchcock wanted to do way back when right like he wanted to start this this movie with a helicopter shot that went over phoenix arizona and then mm, flew into, into the, the window. window and so he had to kind of find a way around that and around the early 2000s suddenly we could technically do that and uh to mixed results <laughs> Maybe the camera sure. shouldn't fly through a, a coffee mug mm. sometimes. Um, <laughs> but that the spirit of what what has technology allowed us to unlock about the way the camera moves and how can we experiment with that to create new emotional, psychological effects on the audience um, just gets me really excited because I'm a nerd. So um, I just... I hope we keep experimenting with that of course we will but that's just i i watched this movie and i'm like oh yeah this invented so much and i yeah. can't wait to see what movies continue to invent moving forward um yeah and as you said inspired lots of uh tropes and things that have been used in many many things inspired some not as great tropes also mm -hmm. uh, uh -huh. and i feel like we're just going to link to Lindsay Ellis's video on tracing the roots of pop culture transphobia because I feel like it does a deep dive and explains uh, a lot of the history of all of this uh, in a really good way. It talks about Silence of the Lambs also and kind of balances yeah. all these things. Yeah. It's, yeah, movies that have these complicated histories. I'll, I'll add to that, uh, which I mentioned, I think, is a, what am I watching before the Netflix documentary Disclosure uh, mm -hmm. that Vern Cox produced, which I think is is you know go really goes into detail on a lot of that yeah nice. yeah yeah we'll put all that in show notes um but yeah psycho one of a kind <laughs> kind of i guess then everyone <laughs> copied it and then like us fans like literally other, other than the other one yeah right yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. uh what have you guys been watching alex what have you been watching recently so brian uh shared a 
a link with me a while back. It was for a trailer for an IMAX exclusive movie that was like an album film for uh, Halsey's new album that was produced by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I did not go to see this kind of artsy looking album movie in theaters in IMAX, but then I got some notification. I must be subscribed to her or somehow I didn't I didn't think I was um basically that she was releasing it like for 48 hours online um and so I signed up to see uh the hour-long album film if I can't have love I want power by Halsey and it was it was fun it was cool you could tell was shot on really nice IMAX cameras she has such an interesting presence and attitude it's like this period weird period piece anachronistic period piece it's it's just the songs from her album mixed with this uh you know persecuted woman queen story uh and it was just a fun visual feast with cool music and i really enjoyed it so if it becomes available again i don't know if she's ever going to release it like permanently um it's it's worth checking out yeah i i did see it in imax um and was waiting to recommend it until it came out in some more permanent like (laughs) venue but i'm sure it will there's a rumor it's going to come out on Halloween, but that's not quite true yet. But um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting because it's not quite most of the, you know, Lemonade or Dirty Computer where it's like, oh, look, it's a it's a feature length music video. There's still music videos in there, right? You can still cut mm-hmm. out and be like, here's a music video. This is not trying to be that at all. It is just a narrative that has like some dialogue and otherwise it's set to music and stuff. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed huh. it. And, and I also recommend the album, Halsey. Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, mwah. <laughs> and, well, and it, it it reminded me of more of uh, like an old school like album movie. Right. Like I, I like it, it felt less like a, like a compilation of music videos and more like something the Beatles would have put out. Or it, it, it felt like it's just a, a 2021 version of an old thing, which was fun to see. Nice, cool. All right, Brian, what have you been watching? Well, since we're getting into Spooktober here, um, I wanted to mention american horror story uh the ryan murphy series which ryan murphy is so interesting to watch his series because sometimes you're like oh you're a really like solid storyteller you can make like like real drama and other times it's like the most campy thing ever and you're like was that on purpose i think it was on purpose but i'm not quite sure um and american horror story is a different story every season so you kind of never know what it's going to be sometimes characters will cross over so it's kind of set in the same universe but um, but I haven't really enjoyed the last couple seasons, but this season I have been enjoying. It's called Double Feature, and it's split into it, it itself is split into two seasons. So the first half is called Red Tide, and it's a screenwriter and his family moved to a small New England beach town, very Stephen King kind of setting. Uh, if you're watching Midnight Mass on Netflix, very similar kind of uh, kind of set. And pretty clearly on, there are vampires in this town, but there are regular people vampires who are sort of sophisticated and whatever and then there are feral tweaker vampires who are just sort of wandering the streets and then it's revealed and this is where it gets cool it's revealed that there's this chemist who makes a pill who, who lives in the town played by angelica ross um and if you take the pill it will unlock your creativity but you're going to have to feed on human flesh like basically right so it's like you get to be creative but if you're not talented 
you become one of the feral tweaker vampires who will just become a, <laughs> no. an absolute zombie. But if you are talented, you are wow. going to have like the most crazy success of your life and everything you could ever achieve with your creativity. So it's like doing that horror movie thing where you're like, oh, cool. You're actually being about something while also being a horror movie. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite seasons, definitely of the past several seasons. Um, and I think it's seven episodes for just this first chunk. Um, and it's got a bunch of the horror story regulars, Sarah Paulson, Ever Evan Peters, Francis Conroy, Finn Whitrock, Leslie Grossman, Billy Lord. Macaulay Culkin is here now. Oh. What? Uh, yeah, and then uh, Ryan Kira Armstrong plays the daughter of the of the the main character, and she is amazing. She's I don't know ten ish or something like that, and she is going to be just the next megastar. And then I only started watching the second half of the season, which is full on aliens. Also, Sarah Paulson, Neil McDonough as Dwight Eisenhower um amelia Earhart shows up just like fully leaning into like crazy wow. 50s alien abduction kind of stuff so i don't know if i would recommend that half yet but watch the first half and then keep going if you're if you're into it wow ryan murphy he just makes lots of stuff yeah and he just he makes stuff that's just watchable it's just fun it's entertaining yeah. and i'm kind of like not even always that concerned with whether it's good i'm just like i'm having a fun time yeah I was trying to remember why Ryan Kira Armstrong sounded familiar. The and Tomorrow War. The Tomorrow War. And yeah. I also like, ah! left that movie being like, this girl is amazing. She's going to be the next thing. So She is she insanely good in this show. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Trisha, what have you been watching? Sure. So on the subject of classics, of which there are more than one version, um, I was clicking around on Amazon Prime and decided to watch the 1992 version of Wuthering Heights, um, which stars Ray Fiennes and Juliette Binoche and is very overwrought. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say it's like, it's okay. So it's Wuthering Heights. If you're not familiar, it's Emily Bronte. Um, <clears throat> and it is certainly one of those books that you might've had to read in high school and been like, dear God, everybody, can we just like, Everyone is so obsessed with like everyone's station in life and like everyone's like family legacy name, right? Thing. And like you can't marry that guy because of his name and he has no money. But then he like got rich and now you have to marry him because <laughs> he's rich now. Like it's just. And people are just so heartsick that they're literally sick and dying. Like people. This is a thing that happened <laughs> wow. a lot in Bronte like novels Padme where it's like, syndrome? Yeah. yeah, like, I love you so much. I'm going to get sick and die. Like, that happened. <laughs> and you're just like, what was it back then? Um, was it like, was this a thing that happened in the real world or was it just in books? Um, anyway, but so Ray Fiennes and Juliette Binoche are the main characters of this. And every scene is like, nothing is funny at all <laughs> according to the language of the movie except it's so ridiculously like overwrought and just like oh i love you so much i hate you it's like no i hate you it's like you are so poor it's like you have despised me for the last time and then someone like goes out onto the moors it's just a lot <laughs> but if you are into that kind of thing, it's pretty fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, 
I watched it over the course of like several days with little bitty chunks. And I was like, I, I thought about it constantly. Like I would turn it off, but then I would think about it. I was like, oh my God, Heathcliff is just so mad at Kathy because of how much he loves her right now. And like, want to go back and watch it more. Um, I have to spoil one thing, which happens in the middle of the movie, which is that, so there's a big time jump in the middle of the movie as there is in any version of Wuthering Heights, because it happens in the book. The book spans decades. There's a time jump in the middle of the movie, though, where Juliette Binoche's character dies, and she then there's a time jump, but she's still in it, and she's just playing her own daughter, but she's blonde now. What? <laughs> what? It is. They just put a blonde wig on Juliette Binoche, and they're like, she's the daughter now. Also, <laughs> That's like the room level <laughs> <laughs> also wow. yeah they're both named kathy which again if you've read the book you're like what <laughs> what emily birthday um anyway yeah so um if you just want somebody who who fully wanted the drama of the text and nothing else and then they got Ray Fiennes and Juliette Binoche to really commit in every single scene to the drama and nothing else. 1992's Wuthering Heights is your movie. It's on your prime. Okay, great. It's gonna wither. <laughs> the heights, they're gonna wither. That's for sure. Oh boy. Um, awesome. I uh, played Deathloop recently. And yeah. Brian, I know you played it. Brian's been like slightly ahead of me in all the game playing. So he's been like finishing all the games right before me. Um, but Deathloop is this first person shooter game developed by Arcane Studios. It's a time loop game, but it's also it's got stealth. It's got action. It's kind of got like a little bit of magic if you want some telekinesis. So it's like it's it's exactly what I want from a game where the gameplay is super fun and challenging, and there's a high replayability. Uh, but the story is really compelling, and you're a character trapped on an island. You wake up, you don't remember who you are, where you are, why you're there. And so it's about solving this mystery and reliving the same day over and over again, going to different places at different times of the day to learn more about what's going on. And it's kind of this crazy puzzle set in this kind of fun, wacky universe. Uh, and it's it Groundhog was... Day memento version. Like, well, kind this, of. The style is basically they mentioned like the twelve movies that inspired it, or thirteen movies, which was like Bond, Tarantino in terms of like actual style, and then Groundhog Day, Edge of Tomorrow in terms of like the the plot and the feel and everything. And it totally fe it feels like a exact sum of those parts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the title seems like it's the sum right. of those parts. Right. Absolutely. Um, anyway, it's super fun. And like the protagonist and like kind of the other character are both like black. And I don't know that that's happened in like a mainstream mm. like video game in a long time. So that was just kind of like a fun other little thing. Um, but yeah, super fun. Highly recommend if you like video games and time loop stories. Yeah, it's a really good time. Yeah. I wish I had time. <laughs> I want to play all the games. <laughs> Do I know what island you should go to then? <laughs> uh awesome well this has been our conversation about psycho thank you everyone so so much for listening we want to say thank you as always to the patrons for making this show possible thank you to our producer vince major and our editor eric schneider i'm michael tucker and i've been joined today by trisha rand brian bittner and alex Cayeros. as always our twitter handles are in the show notes send us a tweet and say hi 
and we'll see you next week for The Ring. We'll see you in seven days. Seven days. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye.